You're listening to the Catholic Psyche Podcast. The Catholic Psyche Podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not intended to take the place of medical or mental health treatment, therapy, or diagnosis. You should always consult a trained mental health or medical professional for such treatment. Welcome to the Catholic Psyche Podcast. This is Sarah. This is Chris. Deacon Basil. And today we are going to talk about every millennial's favorite subject, self-care. I was going to say Instagram, but oh, self-care. Yeah. Or mental health worker <laughs> therapist favorite topic too. <laughs> self-care. It's brought up a lot, right? It was, every it was part of my single training. day. How often do you think you think about that actively about self-care um, on a regular basis? Like <laughs> I thought about it a lot today because we were doing a podcast on it. But... Well, today doesn't count. I mean. Uh... Well, let me let me reword that. How often do you talk about this with clients? Self care. I actually talk about it more with my colleagues and with my my intern and mm. you know like therapists in training. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean with clients, you know, usually I'll say do something nice for yourself if they're having a tough go of it. Yeah, that's never bad advice. Yeah. How about you? I I mean I think working with adults more. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I'm, with fam- I mean, I'm thinking yeah. of the families, yeah, and, families the and stuff. And yeah. I would say that I talk about it quite a lot. I don't yeah. necessarily always call it self-care because sure. I think there's a connotation for the name self-care um, mm-hmm. out there uh, where it's just, you know, kind of indulgence and like... Time for oh, many petties, yeah, hashtag I, self-care. Right, right. I can go and, you know, go get ice cream and call it self-care and justify it, right? And I think that that... Um, so so I, I sometimes call it, you know, being nice and, you know, taking care of yourself. Which is exactly what self-care is, but it's a different way of putting it. Deacon Basil's ascetic side is showing. He's like, don't do anything too nice. Too nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No moist food. That's. <laughs> aside from that, you're good to go. What about, what about you, Sarah? Do you think about self-care often? Um, I have been more. Like, the more that I've been aware of my physical health and mental health and spiritual health. Um, but the the Instagram version of self-care is something that really annoys me it's it's also a huge like cottage industry like it really is a lot of it for me i associate with like multi-level marketing companies and like (laughs) you know essential oils energy bars yoga pants yeah all that stuff all of those things which i love but (laughs) I mean, I, I don't love necessarily... yoga pants, but that's for other reasons. I'm not a big fan of energy bar. I like yeah. those Cliff bars, that, the ones that are filled with like chocolate. I'm, I'm curious, Sarah, <laughs> what do you mean by, by Instagram? So I'm all I do on Instagram is I shout out patristic quotes into the darkness and hope that it will, you know, convert people. Um, but like, what do you mean by that? <laughs> yeah, I'm just teach curious. Him about Te- teach me what you mean by that Instagram self-care. So what I mean by Instagram self-care is the type of activity that really does not benefit the whole person, but it's just something nice to do every once in a while. Like, a pedicure is not really self-care. Unless you have, like, an ingrown toenail or something, a pedicure isn't going to benefit the rest of your life. It'll make your toes look nice. It feels really good to get the massage, to sit in the chair with the back rubber thing, to have someone rub your feet. Well, so, there, I mean, it is but self-care. It's, it's I think, I mean, not... But- holistic self-care I, th- I thought you were going to speak more to like the fact that it's this culture it's like you know you share your meal on social media like people are kind of showing off and like one-upping each other and like their self-care 
and there's this there's this culture of of like um it, it's kind of elitist too it is elitist so it's the oh, i'm gonna take a detox bath with essential oils and lavender petals and because I'm just like so stressed this weekend when really you need to sleep and not drink a bottle of wine tonight and call that self-care. Yeah, actually that's true. People will justify their compulsions, addictions, and general bad habits with the term self-care. And call it relaxing and letting loose. And that's taking care of myself because I don't need to be stressed all the time, right? So I need to relax and this is self-care. Drinking two bottles of Chardonnay is not self-care. Well, but maybe having one with friends is, though. I so, mean, I, yes. think that's, I think that's it's a both end. So oh. here's a cool thing. I'm, in this book I'm reading on addiction, it's, uh, it's called Addiction and Virtue by Kent Dunnington. I saw that on the shelf. You stole that one. I was totally going to read that. You took it before I could. Well, it, I mean, it is your book, I mean, but that's all, besides all thing, the point. All things in Mount Tabor are held in common. By, Wait a know. minute! No, what? what? <laughs> I thought we were I, gonna I do, I, the early Christians. I do tap away on your drum when you're not around. That sounded a, weird. I, uh, on the drum I in the in the play therapy in the corner of the office because I'm a music therapist. Anyway, in this book by Kent Dunnington, uh, he talks about you know that uh, addictions to um, to drugs, alcohol, and sex are desires for for sensory pleasures that are inordinate, but. And so they're tempered by the what what virtue? I just gave it away. Temperance. Yes. Uh, Aquinas actually talks about. So remember how virtue is the mean. Aquinas yes. actually talks about the vice that's on the other end of temperance. It's very rare, which is why I don't think it has a name. But like, Aquinas literally says it's a sin to not to experience sensory pleasures too little. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So the person that like. It, the person who literally thinks that, like, a delicious meal, like, does nothing for them and actually doesn't seek out, like, you know, a, a sunset on a beautiful day or something else that is pleasing to the senses is disordered. So I like that what Deacon's saying is, like, maybe it's good to have some Chardonnay once in a while if, if that's not going to lead you into other vices or addictions. And I think that's that's one of the key things. I mean, I remember, um, I remember uh, uh, Chesterton saying... There's no contradiction between a pipe, a pint, and the cross, and I think that's kind of in there. No, it's kind of a witty, a witty way. Too far, though. I mean, that kind of. But well, I mean, I mean, yes, but with the pint, with the pint. But you know, I appreciate that. But I do think that there is an importance, uh, an important characteristic to that, where it's saying you have to know yourself Mm -hmm. to know that in certain cases, just like Saint Paul says, uh, that in certain cases it's okay for you to be uh, having that that pint. And then in other cases, perhaps for someone who struggles with addiction um, to alcoholism, that's a not that that's a invirtuous act. Yeah, no. For some people, uh, complete abstinence is their moderation. Right. That's kind of the AA approach, and I think there's wisdom in that. But I'm just saying that um, one of the things I like about self care culture is the recovery of this notion that like things that are pleasing are good and healthy and beneficial. Yes. I'm, I'm going to say that now because later in this podcast, I'm going to actually like go hard on a critique of self care. <laughs> So let's start with that. It's actually good for people to indulge in things that help them and that uplift their mood. I don't like the word indulge, but I think it's, I would say it's good for people to find joy in beauty and goodness and things that encourage and enlighten 
their mind and their soul and their body. So, but I'm talking about like lower things. I'm not just talking. So yes, we should all agree the highest good that we can achieve in this life would be the contemplation of, of the divine. Yes. But what but I'm also actually saying things. is that like a, a bar of chocolate is, is good. Only if it's good, high quality chocolate. <laughs> what, what I'm literally saying is that like, you know, sitting on a hammock on a nice summer day and like drinking a, this is just me, a seltzer, like a good seltzer water. That's good. It's just good. And that, that's, I think it's like almost a nice, um, it's like a nice counter act uh, to our, our American Puritan heritage that might suggest that actually indulging in any sensory pleasure would be counterproductive, at least counterproductive insofar as it doesn't, it detracts from our good old Protestant work ethic. Right. Catholicism is in a weird place on this topic. Isn't though. it though? Um, because on the other hand, you've got the sort of highest spiritual um, vocations of, of monastic life. Um, for example, on, in Eastern Christianity, you have the concept of the great schemaed monk. Mm -hmm. So they're vegetarians. So there's absolutely no meat whatsoever. Um, and you have the, the idea of, you know, the hermit, you know, who is in, in, in the distance. I'm reminded of, of a YouTube video of a, of a Coptic Orthodox hermit who, um, you know, is talking about like, you know, the, the struggle of, of fighting against pleasures worldly pleasures even in the desert you know yeah oh sure and, and i think what's interesting about that is so now now i think catholicism and christianity in general but i think you know particularly catholicism is what i can speak for is that it has focused in on the removal of pleasure like pleasurable things like yeah. like the chocolate or whatever yeah uh, historically to a point where there has been a reaction against that Okay, now so now going too far, you're saying like now like an, a reaction in the direction of overindulgence. I think so. Yeah. Okay, sure. And and I think that's what I think that's what we're playing on uh, right. both here at the same time. No, you're right. Where it's it's there's this temptation to go to either side of what Thomas Aquinas yeah, would say. Yeah, well, I'll I'll say this. I have heard shockingly few homilies on drunkenness, and I've seen. An, like shockingly exorbitant amount of drunkenness in Catholic circles, yeah. and everyone's like, "Oh, look at me! I'm I'm like Chesterton." Like, no, <laughs> no, you're getting drunk. You shouldn't be getting drunk. Alcoholism within the Catholic Church is a really obviously, it's a very obvious secret that is that is. It, it's like it's an, a, open it's an open it's secret. It's an open secret, and it's, it's a really quite tragic. For a reason, yeah, like the really Irish tragic. Catholic drunk. Right, or and, German, and, or whatever. Yeah. and it is a huge problem, and something that perhaps we need to talk about on a full podcast at some point in detail. Well, but moving away from that, yeah, but I, I do see. think, boy, this has really gotten dark, really, really here. Alcoholism. But, so yeah, self care is not an overindulgence, and and it, but it's also not, you know, it's it's a move away from this total deprivation of sensory goods. Right. What happens? Because I have my theories, but what happens when there is that total deprivation? Well, I, I think we need to make a distinction between the like the monk or the hermit or the ascetic who's reached, who's reached that level, and and then just the the you know Joe Schmo right. who's denying himself. Right. Um, and and I, and I think yeah. I think I think that's a really keen insight is that not everybody is my five year old, right? So we aren't all the monks. That's and a the, throwback and the to I think the Evagrius. The Evagrius, yeah. Not everyone is has reached that pure ultimate um, stage. Ultimate stage, but. <laughs> And but, not everyone should. And not everyone should. But I think there is also this other side of saying, okay, for the average person, what happens, and I'm curious your guys' experience, but what happens kind of practically 
if there is that over-exaggerated um, sense of, I need to get rid of everything nice in I my think, life today. I think that person who tries to go that route becomes a miser, almost. Um, like, you turn into Scrooge, basically. Scrooge um, McDuck. Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> we were t- for some reason, we were talking about Scrooge McDuck off mic. So, yeah. continue. Um, Scrooge McDuck before his nephews come to live with him. Uh, you, you don't allow yourself to enjoy anything beautiful, and because you don't allow yourself to enjoy anything beautiful, you don't think other people should as well. So, think of the beginning of, um, the story, where Scrooge is such a mean person where he won't even allow his freezing, very loyal, very good um, secretary to put another piece of coal, one piece of coal, onto the fire so he can fill his fingers while he writes. Wow. Like, I, that's... And Scrooge, like, he's... Christmas. Right, right. I, I've, I've only seen the Muppet version. Um, but aside from that... Oh, you are you it. kidding it's actually me? Really I have read it. I have read it. It's but, actually really, really um, good. Yeah. You should read it again this Christmas. Okay, so so there's that there's that other side where it can be that, and I think like some, it shrivels your soul. It shrivel, and I think sometimes we use the the statement that I'm doing this because I think it's holy. Well, yeah. let me also talk about another psychological effect of depriving yourself of all sensory pleasure. Saint Thomas talks about the the relationship between the intellect and the emo- He doesn't use the term emotion; it didn't exist in the Middle Ages. But he uses uh, affections, passions, and appetites, which all mean something kind of similar in different ways if if the intellect rules over the appetites like a dictator or a tyrant the appetites will rebel and overthrow and so if you try to tyrannically like a despot um cut off all of your all the things in life that give you pleasure um they will come back with a vengeance Mm -hmm. and you will end up you could end up an addict what I'm saying is it's exactly what you're saying, Deacon. It's this pendulum, and it's going to go too far in the other direction, and your senses are going to rebel. Your sense appetites are going to rebel and say, we actually want that. Um, don't deprive us. Yes, and you can take that in an inappropriate way of saying, like, well, I just I just have to, you know, have to have this beer, or else if I'm not, I'm going to turn into an no, alcoholic. No, you have to, you think have it, to moderate. You have you to have, moderate. They, they have to cooperate, and they have to be tempered by the intellect. And I think that's exactly it. I think it's the moderation beyond all, all of the other things that, that I think what we want everybody to get out of this mm-hmm. is that moderation is, is really the key yeah. here. As St. Benedict said, moderation in all good things. Yes. Yes, he did say that. He did. Uh, and I think, I think that's you know, really a keen insight. Um, so one of the things that I've seen why self-care is important, though, is um, from my understanding has been because it can be a treatment against what I think is the great scourge of our time. Um, And um, we've talked about this before, I think in the Evagrius episode, but we've talked about it before in the sense that the great scourge of our time is what the ancients and what Evagrius and what really all the monks up until uh, Gregory the Great would say was Acadia. And sometimes people are like, oh, well, it's pronounced Acadia, but no, whatever. It's called Acadia. It's the same thing, right? (laughs) The concept of Acadia is not just simply, you know, burnout. It's not just simply tired. It's not sloth. Gregory the Great transitioned that into sloth, but it's much more complicated than that. It's like boredom or they misunderstand it as sloth, but it's actually pretty 
complex and it's different than clinical depression but it's related to all these things absolutely absolutely so what is it well evagrius actually developed the term and what it originally meant for what acadia originally meant was it was he took it from the greeks the ancient greeks who described the concept of it is the feelings you have when you can't bury your own dead father mm. right so the the ancient greeks said we like can't, don't even have a society where that makes sense anymore. I don't know why I just like agree. Right. Like I actually can't relate to that. Sorry. I, I can relate to the sense of being I am so overwhelmed. Right. That I can't do my duty. Okay, so. that's fair. That, uh, that's a good. And and it, for Evagrius, it was the concept of not just being a physical thing. Um, he takes that into the spiritual life and says that it is a spiritual, emotional, the, the psychological of being the spirit, spirit psyche, mm-hmm. um, being that we must, that is, I am overwhelmed to be able to do my, my spiritual duty. So, what that means practically, and this is me just kind of going on here, but what that means is there's five, in Evagrius, there's five symptoms in his, in his practicals for diagnose, diagnosing Acadia. The first one is an interior instability, which, um, this is why I think it's the scourge of our time. You're kind of swayed with, with the winds, right? Right. You don't so, have, uh, there's no consistency. Is that kind of what that? Right. Means? Exactly. There's no. There's no ability to be consistent in it. There's and, no internal stability. There's nothing to hold you in yourself. Right. Exactly. And so for him, um, he would say that it was the thing that would drive the monk out of his cell. So what would happen in the in uh, ancient Egypt is that you would go and sit in your cell during the hottest part of the day because you don't want to be outside during the hottest part of the day, right? So you go and sit in there and you would be praying, um, for him it was primarily the Jesus prayer. Mm-hmm. You'd be praying the Jesus prayer consistently through this. And he has these this really funny passage where he talks about how the monk would get up and run to the window and stare up at the sky, right? Yeah. Um, and see what time the sun, because he's waiting for, for ninth hour, for three o'clock to come to mm-hmm. come. All the monks would come together and pray um, ninth hour, which is about three o'clock. Um, and so he has this really funny passage, but he also says that what else Acadia is, is it's the driving of the monk to go and help and visit a sick brother. I, Grace and I were just reading about this in John Cashin, actually. Yeah. He talks about how it, it afflicts people at the sixth hour and they're driven by like a restlessness and they have to go and like help the orphans and the widows because they, it's like they're rationalization because like that's good too so why should i be sitting here locked up in my cell all day right right absolutely and so it's this this drive to always do good things and that's one of the key insights about sin i think Mm. sin and and i always say it's the moment someone goes from being a spiritual child to being a spiritual adult it's the moment of realization that i can do everything right but i'm doing it i can do good things and they can still be sins right or you know exactly you're you can aim for goods but those those goods you're aiming for are lower goods that that are obscuring the even higher ones. Right. Yeah. And so in this Eastern tradition, the higher good is actually. And this is gonna sound this is gonna sound completely absurd to a secular listener. Absolutely. But deal with it. <laughs> for the Eastern Christian, the higher good is the contemplation of God, the re- repetition of the Jesus prayer. Right. Higher even than going out into the world and helping the orphans and the widows. Right. I know in the in, in the Western Christian tradition we kind of put the contemplative and the act and the and the active life on an equal plane, but I, I know this was a, for at least the Eastern. Well yes, but and and I would just add the highest good in that case, the way you kind of described it is the highest good is from six o'clock to three o'clock. Mm. Uh, well I'm sixth hour to third hour. Sixth hour to ninth hour. Six, six, six o'clock so so it would be noon to three. Noon to three. The highest good for the monk in that situation is the Jesus prayer. Period. Yeah. 
That might change at 301, right. but that is what he is to be doing. And I think that key about the concept of duty is really important. So this differentiation of I can drive myself to go do good things and then um, I have that instability, that's the modern experience, isn't it? It is, yeah. I need to go and settle on one thing. I can't settle on one thing, which is my duty, but I can go and do all of these other good things. Yeah, and like, and, and like oh, double, double, triple book myself and... Like, yeah, I'll be there, I'll volunteer for that, and I'll be there for that, and I'll show up for that, and like... Yeah. Yeah. But it's when you have a paper to write, and instead I clean my entire house instead of writing my paper. Right. I, or... That's exactly yeah. it. I have that's said really many good. times that Acadia is when it's... It's why is it that a seminarian's room is cleanest during finals week? It's a mess the rest of the year, but why is oh, it perfectly clean so during great. finals week? That's so great. It's because of that moment of uh, of I wouldn't be Acadia. doing anything but I what I'm supposed control. to do. That's so great. So let's bring it back to self-care. So right. are we saying that self-care can be a way to uh, a way to avoid Acadia or a way to mobilize and defend yourself against this vice? Evagrius wouldn't say that. But what I would say is, for me, Acadia is a way of a, both a protective mm-hmm. factor and uh, against Acadia? Acadia? Self-care is a protective factor against Acadia. I'm sorry, yes. Self-care is a protective factor. Boy, that really sounded odd very, very much there. <laughs> self-care is a protective factor against Acadia. And it is a treatment for Acadia. When done right. When done right. Because it can be an excuse mm-hmm. to fall into Acadia. Yeah. And even a justification. I see. So let's talk about self-care done Right. So self-care done right looks like disciplining your life in such a way that um, your boundaries are secure, your your appetites are ordered to what is good and healthy, mm-hmm. and that you are building a life that is secure that won't burn you out. Yeah. I mean, you talked about exercise in the biblical trauma episode, right? Yeah. Didn't you say you started running? That's, I did. That's a really, you know, I was reading the research on that. I mean, running is such a effective mood regulation activity, and it's healthy for your body. It is. Um, I think, this might sound odd, but I think violent exercise, like things that require lots of energy are very intense, like kickboxing, running, mm-hmm. swimming, things that require all of your mind to be focused on your body mm-hmm. are really, really helpful for regulating your mood to get yourself not just not out of yourself Mm -hmm. but to get yourself into yourself so you feel your entire being in one setting so you can like use that practice to refocus your mind when you're working on another project that might be more intellectual totally totally i think that's correct me if i'm wrong chris i think that's the insight of the mindfulness movement right now within psychology is that you take these moments of real intense focus in on the moment. Kickboxing, for example. I'm thinking more of like flow psychology. Like when, you, mm. when you're so engaged in a task that you kind of like lose your, lose your sense of yourself. I don't know. Also, I mean, there's really good research, Sarah, on, on um, the, um, the benefits that physical activity has on cognition. Like learning and memory. Oh, yeah. So... Yeah, I mean, doing, like, any kind of aerobic, exer- moderate to vigorous aerobic exercise semi-regularly, like, can potentially lead to neurogenesis in the hippocampus, the region in your brain um, that, re- that uh, mediates long-term memory formation. I remember reading some studies where extreme 
um, mm-hmm. exercise will actually develop neurogenesis outside of even the limbic system, Whoa. which is really remarkable. And of course, this is all brand new. What does that mean? The limbic system is the the, the section in the midbrain where it's emotional. Other and sides, neurogenesis is is the so so our cells in our body are 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 being replaced at regular intervals, except for neurons. And the standard thinking for many years was that the neurons you're born with. Um, all they can do is die. You can't get new ones. More recently, research has shown that in some cases, you can grow new neurons, and that is neurogenesis. Which is super cool. So cool. And, um, and it allows for the, the um, transmission of the neurotransmitters across the synapse to be more, ac- uh, more um, efficient. efficient. Yeah, yeah um, totally. So, so it is really important. And this is, and this for is pain, a, vigorous, vigorous exercise causes the production of endorphins. I love The body's endorphins. own endogenous opioids. So they're acting on the same receptors that morphine acts on. Right. So it's the feel good, right? It's I, the feel good. I know good. we're using all sorts of really big um, technical terms here. But essentially what it means is that exercise is very good. Um, we and really everyone... should be all doing it. I need to be doing <laughs> I it. I need to be doing um, it. And, and Are we shitting ourselves right now? You, you kind of I can, I can should bit. myself. I don't should anybody else. Okay, and nobody a, else should be that, shooting that's themselves. That's the CVT thing. Nobody else should be shooting themselves. That's, that's uh, very super reflexive. Right. Okay. But I do think that that's a keen insight. Now, I legally need to say here that no exercise program should be begun without medical advice. Blah, 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 blah. You get the idea. Please don't sue us. Go. Yeah. Please consult with your, um, with your elder monk before right. instituting an exercise program in your cell. Yes. <laughs> and if that's your, um, your PCP, then... Make it your PCP. Now. Okay. Well, that's all I have to say on exercise. What what else is good for self-care? I've got one in mind. Sleep. Yes. Yes, I love sleep. Sleep. I mean, there, you know, it's so obvious, but it's like, I mean, what, what, are, what, what, are the, what are the stats on this? Like, how much sleep does the average American adult get a night? Does anyone know? Not it's enough. Definitely less than se- seven hours. Oh, yeah. Less than eight. I think it's four or five. I think it's dropped considerably. I'd have to reread some research on it, but I think it's dropped considerably with the advent of of, um, of the internet and mobile devices, which 100%. makes perfect sense. Yeah. The, the blue light yeah. on your screen suppresses melatonin. I, I, today, I'm all about the neurochemistry and the right. biology. Melatonin um, is the is the is hormone that uh, aids the sleep. So mm-hmm. it's what starts to. Um, develop in your body around sunset mm-hmm. and then at times you'll fall asleep and then it slowly clears out of your system while you sleep yeah yeah i mean the first thing a good uh, you know if you see your doctor about problems sleeping the first good diagnostic or like rule out question they should ask is how many screens are in your bedroom yeah. and how late do you look at screens right are you laying in bed scrolling on your phone waiting to fall asleep that is a great way to ensure that you're not falling asleep if you're staring at your phone or watching Netflix on your computer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think it, I, the, the, what I've seen recommendations clinically is that you don't sleep, excuse me, you, you don't look at a screen for an hour before going to bed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which can be somewhat of a challenge for those of us that like, you know, like uh, watching a documentary on Evagrius or something in the <laughs> evening right before going to bed, you know. So I do think, though, it has to be important. I think there was, I remember, I think it was on NPR. Yeah. I was listening to this thing where there was this real movement in the 90s. And I think I grew up just in the tail end of this. Okay. It was like, be as busy as you can. Sleep is bad. You're wasting time when you're sleeping. Oh, no. So only sleep for like, like 
four hours. I remember President Clinton was talking about that. No, not only that, it's like it's like billed as emancipatory. Like, oh, isn't that cool? Like, you could take this energy pill and like not have to sleep. Imagine like all the cool stuff you can do. Right. Like, as it's, if sleep is a waste of time. Yeah. Well, sleep is like an enemy of modernity. Like our culture does not want you to sleep. Right. Right. I want to. sleep. Well, and the irony is, is that if you don't sleep. For if you don't get enough sleep over time, serious not only psychological but physical um, things will, will come up over time. The, the connection between a lack of sleep and cardiovascular issues is very, very huge. Um, interesting. Even and, and working important. night shifts is a carcinogen. That's really interesting. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that, I mean, certain people have to work night shifts and, 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 and we have to live in reality. I used to but, do it. I used to do it in the hospital. Absolutely. Yeah. But I'm curious, I now ask every single client how their sleep patterns are. That's so um, good. As That's an intake. Is that, have you no, taken honestly, that at all? There, there, are, there are kids I work with who, you know, like I work with children that like have trauma histories. And so right. they have violent, aggressive behaviors. And we're always trying to figure out like, what is it, you know, is what's coming up for them? Honestly, sometimes it's like they're not sleeping at night and then they're irritable and children can't regulate their mood easily when they haven't slept. Right. So we need to address that sleep. Mm-hmm. And then and then things shift for the better. And it's like the most obvious thing. And it's like you can try to go into this like underlying attachment stuff. But if the kid's not sleeping, the kid's not sleeping. Right. Right. I've taken to the point sometimes of just being like, we're not even going to do EMDR work until, which is a trauma, mm-hmm. you know, it's PTSD trauma intervention. We're not even going to do that until we can get you sleeping well, you'll for like an extended this. period of time. You know what's one of the most effective evidence-based treatments for insomnia? What? CBT. Oh, oh, yeah. I'm just trying to score points. You're just eight. trying to score points, yeah. Well, you know what? I'm not angry about the book anymore. Uh, <laughs> no. Um, I, think that, I think that's really a keen insight. So sleep is a major, major um, form of self-care. It yeah. is. It really is. Make sure you have a good mattress. Make sure you have a good pillow. Get a weighted <laughs> blanket if you need to. Those things are amazing. I, yeah, they're, they're really cozy. Um, I, had a, I had another friend who um, wasn't sleeping at night. And he was like a really deep, he's like a deep guy, like a deep thinker. Oh, thank and, you. And oh, was, oh, someone else, sorry. He was, he had just, he was like just coming out of this process of like deep existential, like he was, he went through a conversion. He was, he was an American Anglican and then became Catholic. And, you know, he was wondering like, you know, am I not able to sleep because I'm wrestling with these big questions and then, um, and then he realized, no, the reason I can't sleep is I have an old box spring mattress and he got a new one and then he slept fine. Like, don't rule out the obvious right. solution. Yeah. <laughs> right. I've also been really curious about how, I mean, as a, as a parent, um, what those first few years of parenthood really can do um, psychologically. I mean, I know that um, one of the things that we do sometimes is the Gottman um, bringing baby home. And it's all about, you know, like sleep and what that nice. will do to the mother and what that will do to the father and how that will do you've got the added stress of parenthood, new parenthood, and then you've got sleep and issues like that yeah. as well. So yeah. I think, you know, one of the other things that comes up for me with self-care can be getting a spiritual life in order. Prayer uh, as self-care. Pr- prayer as a, mm-hmm. as a form of, of self-care. I think especially for anxiety, anxiety can sometimes really be helped by having a, a straightforward, stringent prayer life. Yeah. I support that's that. Not the, that's not the only treatment. Please still go to your therapist. Please still go do Take CBT. Take your meds if you need Take to. Take your meds if you need to. But I do think that, that um, having an intensive prayer life, a stringent prayer life in that regard, can be very, very helpful we as well. We should pray after this. We should pray. We should hey, that'd be nice. One, one of the things that we you know do here... It's almost the ninth hour. 
Uh, no, this would be the twelfth hour. This would be Vespers. Oh shoot, you're right. Yeah, I can't get those ancient hours straight. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is like obviously bad with numbers. Yeah, so it hasn't been made clear already in this podcast series. This is um, why we talk for a living and not right. count. We're not accountants. I'm good at like looking at them. I'm just bad at talking about them. Right. Um, but but I do think there is prayer. Yeah. A, a, you know, prayer can be really important as well, and other disciplines. You know, I think sometimes fasting. Yeah. can be a form of self-care. That's interesting. In the sense that, you know, I can be very focused. One of the things that happens for the first week of Lent for me, of great of great Lent for me, is I get very, very focused on my eating habits and when I'm eating. Because there's this thing that can happen when you're doing really intensive fasting where you forget to eat because your body is just not as stimulated. It's the exact, it's the exact opposite of what you would think. This He hasn't, Sarah, he hasn't listened to the episode we did on trauma in the bible and he's like reiterating one of our points remember when we talked about esther the difference fasting fasting and she wasn't hangry she was intentionally fasting that's so funny you need to listen to our we made that exact point i'm so glad we even paused the podcast and told the listeners go get a snack if you haven't eaten yet because you forgot to eat i have explicitly (laughs) told you guys that if i'm not on the podcast i'm not listening to it I'm kidding. I'm so kidding. Vain. I'm kidding. We're all on the same page about fasting. That's all I'm but, saying. But well, and, and and what's interesting about that though is also just eating right and eating healthy, healthily, mm-hmm. can be um, really important as well. I For remember yeah. I remember yeah. a, another research study that indicated the connection between protein eating protein um, and being able to work on on um, PTSD symptoms. Oh, wow. interesting. Um, well, I mean you. Your body needs energy. Right. You, you metabolize. I mean, you, you're going to need... Pro, proteins are those essential building blocks, right? Like mm-hmm. like food breaks down, right, into amino acid and protein. So, I mean, yeah. I, I don't see how you can do much of anything if you don't have enough protein. Absolutely. And on the flip side, carbohydrates can also have a, a um, regulating effect for anxiety as well. Mm-hmm. So, these are all, like, really interesting things and, and really should be yeah. discussed. I've always played with the idea of, like, um, of dietitian work with, yeah. with, uh, I am fascinated by that I'll, I'll say yeah. this you know from having kind of looked at it in bits I think nutrition science is is some of the messiest out there it's it's just notoriously hard to control for variables right and so like if you guys think it's hard to like tease out what causes you know what like depression and to figure out like which um, is which it drug gluten is, is it sugar I mean nutrition science is even messier than that yeah. and it's yeah. just like I've met a lot of people that are really interested in it and have like diametrically opposed views on it. And, and, you know, of course every year there's a new fad diet that comes out. So yeah, it's just, it's messy science, but it's, it's obviously essential and food is our medicine and it's important for our lives. So Absolutely. Food, good, good eating is, is also self-care. It is. Can we, can we critique self-care now? I, I you- know you've been sitting there waiting with bated breath um, to talk so about patiently. it. So patiently. Well, why thing, don't we? The thing about self-care culture is I, one thing that I really don't like about it is that the way it puts the onus on the individual, right? And it's in some ways symptomatic of a sick society. Um, in that it's very individualistic? In that, like, you know, in lieu of actually having, like, access to health care, um, we're going to recommend that you go take a lavender bath. And that's not enough. Yeah. And also, many of the, like, uh, many of the, the things mo- the most associated with self-care, a lot of these, like, activities, like, whatever it is, from jazzercise to laughter yoga, are things that really only affluent people have access to or do. And, like, 
so it's one of those luxuries that's actually not afforded to many in our society. And so I, I kind of like this structural critique. Like, yes, we ought to do self-care, but what, what does it say about our culture that everyone is obsessed with doing self-care and yet we're all still so anxious and depressed? Goat yoga is not effective. I think that's my favorite form of ridiculous yoga. They have, you're doing yoga with goats and they like climb on you. Like if you're in a position where your back is available to stand on, they will stand on you. Like and they, yes, it's ridiculous. But yeah, only rich white people can afford that. Okay. Um, no, I think, I think that's true. And I, I mean, so let me, let me translate this into something maybe that is accessible to Deacon Basil. You know, for, for the, for the Eastern monastics, um, they lived in community and they cared for each other. Like the, we use this, St. Paul uses the language of the one body, right? So when one organ is sick, the whole body suffers. And so the monks weren't like, have you ever thought about like maybe going and selling some doTERRA and like doing a little bit of a oil on the side? Like maybe that would help you feel better. Like the monks were there for each other. And, uh, and, and I, I, I wish we had more communal care. I wish it wasn't all offloaded onto the self. Mm, I, that's a good point. I think that is a keen insight because... Um, that's been your favorite phrase this podcast, keen insight. He's complimenting us. Let's just roll with it. Yeah, take it <laughs> while you can. Uh, um, I, think, I think the insight of that is that there is this drive to find um, existential purpose yeah. that is so so profound now. And when you don't have that purpose, you then go and, and try and um, find it in other things. And those things are cheap substitutes for the actual meaning that you can find behind things. A lavender bath feels really nice in the moment. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I've never experienced a lavender bath. I but in, I would imagine it would. But It is really nice. Is it really nice? Okay, good. Um, but it is not a substitute for purpose in life. Yeah. No, it's not. And even, um, you know, self-care is almost always, you know, in the service of, of health. And health, health, I really wanted to say this in the beginning, health is an instrumental good. Health is only good insofar as it allows you to achieve higher things still. The ultimate goal of one's life should not be physical health because we will all die and our bodies will all deteriorate. That's the natural course of things after the fall. Health should allow us to achieve virtue, um, discipline, and holiness. Yes. That's exactly what um, Maximus the Confessor said um, in one of our quotes that we posted a, f a few weeks back. Yo, my boy Max. Uh, Maximus. That's such a great name. Um, also, follow us on Instagram because we're cool. Right, and, and if you want a daily dose, a daily dose of, uh, of, desert, of desert father for your, uh, self -care. for your self care, then yeah, follow us on Instagram. Catholic they Psyche. are like harsh quotes sometimes. Uh, there have I, been a few I, that have been like, oh. I, how? Oh, I, I mean, okay, like, I, yeah, but how? Some of them, really. Some of the Eastern Fathers, I, I can't read them. Yeah. They're too scary. Yeah, I edited a few actually from what we actually put, what we originally were going to put up. So, anyways, but I think there's, I think there's a, an, in, uh, the importance of this is to say there can be a tendency to over-identify and say I have to reach this this sort of perfect health, perfect well-being in every aspect of my physical life, which ironically is just a fear of death. It can be an obsession, right? Yeah, a way, a, an, an obsessive way to avoid confronting death is like, like compulsively, you know, doing a ten mile run every single day, and eating like straight paleo, and then like whole thirty guys, not smoking, not drinking, you know. 
don't ever, you know, having a standing desk or bouncing on a yoga ball while you do your office work. You're like, every, you can do everything perfect and you're still going to die. You're right. going to die. Memento Mori. It's fine. We should do a podcast on Memento Mori sometime. We should, but I'm, yes. And I think, I think what you're getting at, though, is that the, the communal side of this is that you need a community that can existentially deal with the fact that death is possible. Yeah. That it's not just possible, that it's likely, that it's, oh, that's like, that it's going to happen. Still, yeah. That it's going to happen. Yeah. And that we can't hide from that death in the bubbles of a lavender bath. Oh, that was a good tie-in. That's the tagline for this episode. We can't. We can't hide from death in the bubbles <laughs> of a lavender bath. <laughs> Sorry. We shouldn't laugh at the, no, the wise a, Reverend Deacon. Really good. Yes, that's right. But I think, <laughs> I think that is one of the problems. And a community, when a community can, can face that, I think that can be really a, a good thing. And one of the struggles has been large church communities or even you know large church communities that have a lot of funerals but you you don't know everybody that's going there you don't have this kind of experience of the of that that bringing on of time and that okay. slow that slow um, decline that all of us experience yeah. and so I, I I think it's really important for people to go to funerals of, of um, community members. Um, now maybe don't just show up out of the blue, you know, if it, if it was just the person across the, oh, across no, the way. I mean, but I think we need to have that. And I think one of the really beautiful things about both Eastern and Western Christianity that we, that we get this, well, Catholicism, um, and Orthodoxy, one of the things that we get really, really good is the, uh, the prayer for the dead. Yeah. You know, it's coming up in, in, in early November, end of October, um, in, in Western Christianity is the time for the prayer for the dead. Eastern Christianity has five Saturdays every year. Where it's just in, well, and and more than that, we also have two um, Tuesdays, where we really focus in on, you know, the, the 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 reality of death, and I think those can be really important things. Totally. I think every Eastern Christian should know how to pray a panahida, um, which is the prayer for the dead, yeah. and really should have those memorized. They're very short panahidas. In, in the Maronite right, we do we do a communal prayer every time a parishioner or someone close to the parish has died, and then a thirty day memorial after that, and then yeah. like a year memorial. Yeah, that, that, that's the Byzantine tradition as well. It's so um, beautiful. And everyone in the church becomes aware of these deaths yeah. when we experience them together. Yeah. When I was a Roman seminarian, I would always keep a tab on the office of readings at the back of my, my breviary. Not the office, but the office of the dead. Because yeah. I think that's really important to keep that in mind as well. So. So I think one of the things that we're missing for is this aspect of community and self-care and communal care is we have forgotten what it means to be community nowadays and yes it's knowing each other and paying attention to how we're all doing like and the cycle of time and death but what does it mean in the day-to-day life Mm. yeah i think we can do another episode on on caring and being cared for this is something my wife is really interested in there there's a passage from les mis the, the book Victor Hugo that talks about the uh, archbishop at the end of his life being cared for in his infirmity mm-hmm. which is so beautiful and we've actually framed it so I would I would like that to this can be the launching off point to a future discussion about h- how it's actually good to allow oneself to be cared for by others in the community yeah it's very difficult but very beautiful so then self-care is part of that is taking care of a sick brother mm-hmm 
when it's appropriate. And when you're the sick brother, letting someone come and take care of you. Yeah. 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 That's it. Outside of from 6th to ninth hour. Right. So then it's just, just, just then, then it's, yeah. Just, just take an, if you're the sick person, just take a nap for three hours, you'll be fine. Yeah. There you go, sleep. <laughs> All right, that's self-care. Memento mori. All right, take care. All right.